I'm going to just kick us off with a question. Jesse, why are you holding your cup like that? That's just really weird. That's not the question. Here's the question. Have you ever made it to the end of a movie and feel like you need to rewatch the movie because of the ending of the movie? Okay? So uh, films like Inception or um, Usual Suspects or, let's be honest, uh, The Sixth Sense. You get to the end of these movies and you're like, wait a second. What just happened? In many ways, that is what we're experiencing with this letter, this book to seven flesh and blood house churches in Asia Minor. And uh, is my pack not on? What in the world? Guys, we've had, it's on. Enjoy, enjoy that reality, Trent. My, my pack is on. It's on your end. We, we're having some sound troubles. Um, but a couple of things that I think are really important for us to look at here are um, that the beginning of this book, the beginning of this letter, starts like this. The revelation from Jesus Christ. And we talked last week that this revelation is not just from Jesus Christ, it's also about Jesus Christ. And the word apocalypsis means that uh, something bigger than in just apocalypse, like you and I would think of in our day and age. It actually means to uncover or to unveil something that was hidden. Something that was hidden, something that needs to be shown and opened up. And there's a lot of surprises in this. But they're not of the calendar kind. It's about this story that ends up fitting together, and at the center of it is Jesus. And it's one revelation. So we're going to help each other by, uh, by not using the term revelations. Okay? We've had a few people, like, I've had a few people, I'm so glad you're in revelations. And, and then I scold them and make fun of them. <laughs> because it's just one revelation. So you have permission to make fun of each other and correct each other. It's one revelation about Jesus. And then it goes on to say this, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Today we are going to do a little bit more background. And then we are going to jump into um, 11 more weeks together. And the reason why we're doing background is there's so much. There's so much for us to understand before we start figuring out what this book is about. Now that phrase, what must soon take place. Um, many people throughout the last 150 years, and the reason why I say the last 150 years, is because there has been in um, church history, um, over the last 150 years, there's a way of interpreting the scriptures uh, that is called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism, and uh, basically it started with a guy named uh, John, John Nelson Darby. He kind of came up with a way of looking at scripture 
that ended up making the book of Revelation about the future. And so what was utilized in this conversation was this phrase, what must soon take place. Now, there are seven references to what must soon take place in this book. And we talked about the number seven being important. We'll talk about that here in a second. But we're just going to list them here. We're just going to throw them up here on the screen. Uh, one verse one, what must soon take place. One three, because the time is near. One seven, even those who pierced him will see him. So this is the idea that even the people who were alive and uh, when Jesus was crucified will actually see him. 2.16, otherwise I will soon come to you. 3.11, I am coming soon. 22.6, the things that must soon take place. 22.7, behold, I am coming soon. 22.12, behold, I am coming soon. <laughs> Again. 22.20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And so seven times throughout the letter, Anything attached, you know, to the number seven is, has significance, and we'll get into that down the road. But so if you took this literally, like it's going to happen soon, like, like really soon, um, you would end up being in the camp that believes that all of the book of Revelation has already taken place. And um, soon, for some of us, soon has been um, really, let's look at the calendar and figure out like when this is all going to happen. So there's a guy that wrote a book, um, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Okay. Well, 1988 came and went. And he wrote a sequel. <laughs> 89 Reasons. I'm not joking. <laughs> <laughs> but what are we supposed to do with this? Well, in Mark 1, we get some of this uh, interesting language that we get to read um, actually out of Jesus. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He said this, the time has come for the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now that word near can either be translated a time reference or a spatial reference, okay? Now, in this context, it is a spatial reference, meaning the kingdom is near because Jesus is near. Does that make sense? It wasn't like near, it's coming soon, but it's like Jesus is close by, the kingdom is near, Jesus is near. And so the way the soons in Revelation need to be interpreted is this kind of the same way. Your focus is now, meaning that there's two ways of using the word time in Greek. And this is really important for us as we kind of understand what's happening. Kairos is special time. Meaning, some of you ladies who are pregnant right now, there will be a moment when it's like, it's time. Okay? Which is, let's go to the hospital. It's special time. It's Kairos time. 
And then there's ordinary time, which is chronos, or where we get the word chronology, right? Ordinary time. Now, the word kairos is used here. Urgent time. Things should be dropped kind of time. Importance time. Not to look at your calendar, but to look at your life. Does that make sense? And most of the kind of the teaching I grew up with was about, hey, let's look at the calendar and see when all this stuff's going to happen. Okay, let's look at the newspaper and let's look at the book of Revelation and see if we can fit it together. Now, we laugh, but many people have spent their whole life with this. And soon does not mean to get out your watch. It actually means to live urgently. Like you and I have, not anxiously, but with a sense of being wide awake to what is happening in our life, what is happening in our church, what is happening in... The world. Now, Jesus was super clear on this whole time thing. Acts 1 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. The problem is, is that all of us you know, have grown up in cultures where it's like, we want to know the times and the dates, and we try to figure it out. Matthew 24 and 25, there's a series of parables. Um, one of them is this, this whole idea of a king going away. And then there's this delay on the king coming back. And then there's always a surprise when the king comes back. And there's this whole idea of being ready. Matthew 24, 36 says this, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. A few verses later in 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. And then two verses later, so you all also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So the reasons we don't uh, take the must soon take place part and turn it into a calendar is that Jesus himself ruled out, you know, that very clearly in his teaching. And what he suggests and said is that you and I are to always be ready, wide awake, watching, listening, preparing for his imminent return and this whole fulfillment of the kingdom. Now, some of you are like, I don't know if I agree with that. And that's okay. The goal here isn't agreement. The goal is to uh, spur us towards a different way of thinking and living and hoping. So Revelation 1, uh, we're going to continue in this. Some of this is background. Um, He who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Remember, we talked about this being prophetic literature. And prophetic literature was meant to warn and comfort that generation 
of what could and would happen if they did not change their ways. Okay, so in prophetic literature in Scripture, the warning was on the people. And it's kind of like this, moms and dads. It's kind of like with your kids, you don't sit sit them down and go, I have a prophecy for you. If you don't clean your room, okay, this is what will soon take place. But think about it in these terms, right? The onus is on the hearer to change their ways so that they will avoid what could happen. And that's what a prophecy is. It's a warning. It's also an encouragement to live differently, to have a different focus. And then verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. We talked about this uh, last week as, as the letter arrives, the letter comes, and it is read out loud, it is performed, and they listen to it, and they're hearing things and seeing things in their imagination um, that awaken um, excitement and hope in them. Um, that means whoever, I want to just make sure we're really clear on this, it means whoever heard this letter okay, in the first century would have more or less understood what it meant. Because they were blessed if they took it to heart. Seven times either the reader or the audience is blessed if they take it to heart. And it would have been deeply meaningful and significant to them, to that generation receiving it. Verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Remember, this is a letter. It's addressed to actual people. Um, authorship. I mean, it's, it fits all the New Testament letters. It's got authorship. It's got to whom it, you know it's going to. It's got a salutation. It's got a doxology. And it's a circular letter, meaning the person took it to all seven churches. Meaning all seven churches heard about all the other seven churches. We'll get into that next week. So, and just a reminder from last week, just the, the, the hubris to think on our part that the original audience would have been clueless as to the meaning of this letter. And we have somehow figured it out 2,000 years later. It's just crazy, Right? It's like this letter's performed in front of them, and they're just like, what? Can we? This, this. And then we're like, oh, this person's Saddam Hussein, right? <laughs> Duh. It's crazy. But that's what's happened with it. Because it's been used as, we don't, we don't understand the Old Testament parts, and we don't understand the history that's going on. And we've placed ourselves over the text in a way that the text rules out. And it goes on, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before the throne. Seven here does not mean seven specific spirits, but the word seven, the number seven means completeness and fullness. 
So the Spirit of God, the completeness of the Spirit, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, all this exalted language, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. All of that is letter stuff. It's beautiful, high uh, language. It's, it's amazing. Now, we did not get into this part last week. We skipped it. He, he, yeah, he doesn't. I understand. He doesn't want to go. That's how all of you are like, I wish I was going. (laughs) Verse 7, it says, look, he is coming with the clouds. It's an image from Daniel 7. And every eye will see him and even those who pierced him. That comes from Zechariah 12. And all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. That also comes from Zechariah. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Here's the big point. It has been asked of the book of Revelation. John sees this vision and people are like, he just... He's seeing things in the future that he can't explain, like Apache helicopters. (laughs) And he's trying to find symbolic, like he's using symbolic language because the writer is seeing things he's never seen before. And he's trying to describe something that's in his mind eye that he's never seen before using symbolic language. And my response to that is no. The symbols are not looking forward. They're actually looking backward. The Old Testament is full of all of these images. And if we assume that all of Revelation is dealing with is the future, then we will be missing out on what that letter is actually calling us to think and feel and do right now. So the deeply layered meaning about seeing the revelation of Jesus has to do with so much Old Testament imagery. And then there's this beautiful personal address to the audience. It says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patience and endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Some people believe he was exiled. Some people believe he was there on a missionary journey. Uh, We don't know exactly, but um, on the Lord's day, he says, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you will see and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I love that at the beginning when he says um, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. Wouldn't it be great if the American church was known as in the suffering, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance? Wouldn't that be awesome? This was their reality. And it says on the Lord's day, I mean, he's talking about Sunday. It was a change from Judaism. Um, Sunday, they worshiped because of the resurrection. 
And then it says, in the spirit. Now, here's the thing we're going we're gonna to look at. Scholars believe that part of how John architected the letter was based on these four different passages in the letter called in the spirit. And we see this in 1.10 and 4.2 and 17.3 and 21.10. And we believe that there's lots of different ways to chop up the letter and to chop up the book. And one way people do this is this way. Now. Something that's really important for us to understand. And I just want to make sure you hear this. This book is so meticulously arranged. It can be nothing less than just a literary masterpiece. Like it is incredible. And it's a little humbling to actually try and attempt to unpack it. Because there's so much here. There's so much Old Testament imagery. There's so much that John is borrowing from culture. And it is just arranged in such a way as to point the hearers to a beautiful, hopeful, faithful future. And remember, it's in dialogue with those two things. Like I said, Old Testament imagery and and Roman propaganda. You know what I mean by propaganda, right? Like... They're trying to pump themselves up for the people. And, and, and these, these house churches, I mean, these, these cities that the house churches are in are actually competing and stumbling over each other to get the favor of the emperor. And it says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, as you would. And several times here, what you'll hear is that he hears a voice, he hears something, and then he turns, and it's something totally different. So we'll get into that here. And it said, write on a scroll what you will see and send it to these seven churches. Now, throw up a little map of the seven churches. Legit, legit map. Actual places. Archaeologically verified all the things. These are the seven churches that John personally wrote to. Now, we believe there were more churches than this. We believe that the number seven has something to do with it. The whole idea of completeness, right? And uh, what what did they have in common? These cities were affected by the imperial uh, cult of the Roman Empire, meaning all seven of these cities were, like I said, competing... And, um, and under pressure to get validation from the empire. See, on this part of what is now modern-day Turkey, on this part of it, um, in the history of Rome, this whole group of people, this whole mass, at different times throughout Romans, Rome's existence of the empire, thought about peeling away. And so there was some... Um, you know, some mutiny, if you will, from this side of the Roman Empire throughout the history of Rome. Now, in order to keep them uh, locked in, they created a way for this group of people to compete and to win favor for Rome. And they were given things in return. So uh, we learned that uh, Pergamum got an aqueduct 
built by Rome and funded by Rome um, based on their worship of the emperor. And so all of them were competing. They were doing their thing. And, and what we learn here is that uh, the, a lampstand is a way that John pictures a church. And we'll get into that here in a second. But this whole idea of God speaking. Two times in the letter, God speaks. And here's the first one. And then he speaks again at the end of the book. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come. Um, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet. And this is repeated at the end of the letter. So the whole idea behind the way John arranges the letters to say this. God is saying, I am the point of the book. I'm the point of it. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. What are lampstands? Churches. And among the lampstands was someone like the son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with golden sash around his chest. His hair, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, which is a compliment. It means you are wise and... Um, had seen a lot of life and people would come to you for wisdom. And his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining. It's all its brilliance. And this is where we go, okay. Here's some revelation now. Right? Like these images. And I just want to show you how much this is drenched in the Old Testament. Okay? The robe comes, it's a priestly image from Exodus. Reaching down to his feet with a golden sash is actually out of Daniel 9 and 10. His head white like wool from Daniel 7. Eyes like blazing fire, Daniel 7, Daniel 10. Feet like bronze. Daniel 10, Ezekiel 1, voice like rushing waters, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 43, his right hand. Um, you hear this image all over the scriptures. Uh, it's like a royal reference. Coming out of his mouth, a double-edged sword, Isaiah 11, 49, and his face shining like the sun, we think comes from Judges 5. These are all imagery that if you knew the Old Testament and John would, this is something he's bringing to life in the imaginations of the people in Asia Minor. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, like I said last week, these images and references, um, they're going to go right over your head. And then you're going to end up making some futuristic meaning out of it. And one of the ways that people have done this is to say that John is describing something that he doesn't have words for. And so he has plenty of words. I'm just going to tell you, he has plenty of words to describe it because they are all coming from his imagination in the Old Testament. And the predominant Old Testament text referred to in Revelation is Daniel chapter 7. Okay? And I'm going to read it for you now. Just a few verses. This is Daniel in captivity. Does anybody know where Daniel is? Babylon. Now, something so critical for you to understand is that Babylon was an actual place and it was an archetype of many places. 
many empires. Daniel chapter 1, verse 7. Sorry, Daniel 7. It's Daniel. I screwed this up on my notes. Don't worry. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. How cool is the name of God, Ancient of Days? I love it. He should keep it. His clothing, his clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were ablaze. His throne was mobile. That's cool. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from, from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Uh, We will meet that image in Revelation 4 and 5. The court was seated and the books were opened. We are going to read about books in Revelation 20. Then I continue to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. We'll get into that language here in a bit. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. We will meet a beast, many beasts. The other beasts had been stripped from their authority, uh, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. Um, So the the image we're going to see of the beasts will be from Daniel as well. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Now, if you were in the original audience, you were probably a mixture of Jewish people and Gentile people. And the Jewish people right now would be like, oh, my goodness. And we're going to get into some passages in the letter where the Gentiles were going to be like, oh, my goodness. All right. You would know what he's doing here. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. We will see this in Revelation 4 and 5. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. We will see this phrase again. So in Daniel, and we don't have time to go through this, but there's this whole reference to different statues. You can go and read it. It's pretty wild. Um, the, lat- the latest one is actually of Rome. And we hear uh, this imagery of a rock being carved out of a mountain and thrown against the statue, and it is destroyed. Um, and, and we think that that has something to do with what is to come. A lot of us in, in, in our place. But, but really, this is all just pulling together all the imagery that they knew in their own mind's eye. Now, closing, what does this mean for us? We've done a lot of background last week, this week. This book is for all times because it is about all time. We think of the word apocalypse meaning um, being about a movie with like a big crazy ending. Um, It is about, not about the prediction of the future, it is about a perception and the interrogation of the present. And John is showing the church what is happening around them, 
what God is up to and how they can fit into it. And it's also a prediction. It's not a prediction of the future in the terms of a prophecy, but a warning to live faithfully in light of what could take place. And it's a letter about seven struggling house churches. They're trying to maintain their faithfulness to Jesus. And they all experience a different level of faithfulness or non-faithfulness. And next week, we're going to talk about one of the house churches as a little bit of an archetype for all seven of them. So we're not going to do all seven house churches each week. We're going to just kind of look at one as a lens for us. Now, here's the thing. All seven house churches were facing, their biggest problem they were facing was Babylon. The archetype of Babylon. Rome as Babylon. And not in a bad, horrific, kind of like necessarily a bad way, but, but it, as we're going to read next week, some of them were actually like, this is kind of nice. This is working out well for us. Like we can worship Jesus and hoard some good wealth. Like we can we can kind of we can kind of walk both paths. You know the biggest problem that we still face as a church today is Babylon. Babylon is past and it's now. It's tomorrow and it's the future as well. It is only it is all time because Babylon is, in a sense, all time. There's far more to this term Babylon than just like an image from the Old Testament of an actual city. And we're going to spend a whole week talking about Babylon. Some of you are like, great, tell me when that is. I'm not going to be here. Um, Church, when we read Revelation well, we develop an ability to discern for ourselves as a community. This is really important. This isn't just for us as individuals. This is for us to read as a community. It helps us discern the presence of Babylon in our world. And then we learn to resist its creeping powers into our church and into our lives. And it's really creeping powers. It creeps in. Now listen, here's the thing. I recognize you could go to a church that tells you how to simplify your life and put it together and not wrestle with this incredibly complex stuff. Um, And we talk about this a lot. There are ways for me to present this material that is largely couched in certainty. And I'm not going to do that. And I'm just telling you honestly that in some ways the church biz, if it's done with certainty, to be honest with you, that's a better way to keep an institution going. Because certainty kind of pays the bills. 
And this isn't certainty. This is actually something a little bit more challenging. And I think a great deal of us actually do care about what this means for us. And I think many of us deeply want a way of following Jesus that has a little bit of skin in the game for us and not just an add-on to our lives. And when we wrestle with and, and, and experiences the challenges of interpreting and living out the scriptures, I'm just really proud of you. And I'm, I'm really thankful to be a part of this. Because we're introduced to something that is, I think, more compelling and a more faithful way to interpret Revelation. And it causes us to reflect and hope. And on the one hand, it's set against empire, meaning you're going to read things. We're going to read things in here that are just like against empire, against Babylon. And the other on the other hand, it is also set against empire that's creeping into our lives. And it's easy to see flattened a flattened world as a game of human power. And we just need to recognize that we're in that game itself. Like we actually live in that game. And so the book of Revelation requires us to take a stand for the lamb in this world. It's about a public apprenticeship to Jesus. And we just finished a series on discipleship, and which is the Greek word mathetes, which means apprenticeship. And it's like a really core series for us because our goal is not to be a church of attendees, but to be a community of people that actually live out the hope of the slain lamb. We'll get into that imagery in our world. Trusting the gospel forms faithful dissidents who follow the lamb and have the courage to speak up and to speak out against Babylon. And the scriptures are filled with dissidents. Moses was a dissident. Read the story of Exodus. He was, a, he was not a perfect human being. Amos, Jeremiah, John from Patmos are all dissidents. They all call us to live urgently and wide awake. So I had a friend of mine who kind of was being sarcastic and he shot me a, an anonymous text. So it wasn't anonymous, but he was just playing around because we are inviting you to give us your, or your questions. And here's the thing. Nobody sent me a question. And that cuts deep. <laughs> like either you're like, I just trust you, whatever you've given me, whatever. I'm not going to wrestle with it. Or you just haven't really begun to like really uncover some of the things you might have as far as questions. Send me your questions. If you actually scan the QR code, it's, I think it's on the thing, right? Maybe it's on the thing. It's on the thing. It's on our Sunday thing. It's a horrible way to market what that is. But it's like our Sunday kind of program. There it is. Send me your questions. Send us, our teaching team, send us your questions. Now, the reason why uh, this person sent this to me to just to, like, be sarcastic and to mess with me a bit. Um, he says, but what about the millennium? Are you pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib? 
And he's, you know, he's asking this sarcastically because he knows it's a trigger word, you know, for me. Um, but here's the thing. So many of us grew up with those questions. And you would sort people by their answer to those questions. Some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm so glad you don't. Um, but the fact that those are the questions that we ask when we read the book shows how far off we are. We have a whole theological system in place around two verses that talk about something called the millennium. There's 400 plus verses in the book. And we've created whole theological systems about one or two words. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Period. And if we read and study this and are not compelled, more compelled by who Jesus is, then we've completely missed the point of the story. We've totally missed it. Uh, one other thing I want to share with you is this Tuesday night, I'm going to be here. I'm going to come down here. I'm going to open the, the, the church up. I'm going to unlock it. And then I'm going to sit and wait for some of you. Um, sometimes this works out well for me. Sometimes this is just really lonely. But, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be here on Tuesday. And if you have questions, you want to just talk and riff about revelations. Revelation. I did it. Shame. If you want to talk about it, if you want to just talk about how you kind of grew up thinking about it, if you have questions, if you're out of like a live, you don't want to do anonymous, come hang. What time? 6.30. Tuesday. Second thing is, if you want to read further, there's a fantastic book. I don't know if we have the picture. Do we have the picture? I think we have the picture. That's it. Reading Revelation responsibly. It's a fantastic book. If you want to get a little nerdy on your own, hit that book up. Okay? But let me pray for us. God, we are engaged in something... If we're admitting it, confusing. There's more here than meets the eye. God, we ask that you would continue to use our imaginations. That we would see our lives as dissidents. And dissidents are people of hope who imagine a better future world. But not only that, it doesn't stop with that. Dissidents begin to embody that world. No matter what's going on around us, God, would you give us the ability to discern how Babylon creeps into our life, how Babylon creeps into our church? Would you show us how to live faithfully with eager expectation and hope for the future? God, that's the community we want to be. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, who this letter is about. Amen.